0: Uh, It's a common practice to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. And this morning we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to look at the first eight verses. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 through 8. And the title of my sermon this morning is Wronged and Defrauded, Lawsuits and the Church. And the key words for our worshipers in training are Judge, Wrong, Defraud, and Law. If you recall uh, from your own Bible study, perhaps in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 through 46, uh, Luke in his writing is giving us a description of what the uh, the first church was doing. After the resurrection, after, uh, after the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost and the church began to grow and expand, uh, he gave a description of what was going on within that church. And we see in that that they were doing several things. Uh, but the things I want to point out is that they were, uh, they were selling their possessions and belongings and giving to any who had need. They were enjoying meals together with glad and generous hearts. They were going from house to house and meeting with one another and sharing meals together day after day. And they lived a communal life of fellowship and prayer. They were constantly in prayer together. They were studying the scriptures and learning from the apostles' teaching. So this was the picture that we saw of what the early church was doing and what God had initiated through the apostles. And so then we get to the Corinthian church who took all of these things and turned them on their head. Instead of selling possessions and belongings to give to any as there was need, they began suing each other to gain more possessions and to have more wealth. Instead of having meals together with glad and generous hearts, we'll see later on that they were cutting in line for communion so that they could get drunk off the wine. And instead of communal life and fellowship and prayer, they were engaged in uh, communal sex acts. And so they had a very corrupt, perverse um, culture. They were taking things of the world into the church. And so we've seen all along that Paul is recognizing these things, that he has heard from others that have been reported to him, and he is confronting them on each of these. These are corrupt and wicked practices that crept into the church to the point of, and we saw a few weeks ago, accepting practices that were not even tolerated among the pagans. We saw three weeks ago, Pastor Steve showed us at the beginning of chapter 5 that they had a man within the church who was sexually immoral with his stepmother. And he said, not even the pagans do this and you allow this in the church. These people were swollen with pride and with arrogance. And so now we're getting to the point Paul is continuing to point out the sins amongst the body. He's hoping to... Uh, bring clarity to them of what is sin and how to deal with it. These are people who are claiming to be Christians and he's pointing out to them, you're not walking consistent with what God has set out for us to be and do. So let's read together these eight verses in chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare? Go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. I'll say up front, this is a very uh, widely abused text. So I hope we can bring a little clarity here and get some more understanding of what Paul is actually saying. And I think it's pretty straightforward if you pay attention to the words that he's using here. So first, what's going on? But we see in verse 8, you wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And as he speaks of that, what's most likely happening is that because of either land or money that they possess, these professing Christians within the Corinthian church are suing each other. Some of your translations will say, uh, instead of a grievance against another, it'll say neighbor. But he's actually speaking a brother to those within the church. So you're suing one another within the church. They're taking their case before the pagan magistrate, before the pagan judges, and they're laying their case before him to judge and decide. And we can understand this, right? We can uh, relate to this probably better than most uh, cultures can. In the United States, there's between 80 and 90 million lawsuits every single year. Uh, Seventy percent of the world's lawyers are in the United States. And we're adding approximately 50,000 more lawyers every single year. So we understand what was going on in the Corinthian church in this regard. They were doing business together. They were making deals. They were doing work. And in the midst of all that, something goes wrong. And their response is, I'm suing you. And then there's a countersuit, And then this legal battle ensues against one another. Two members of the same church are all locked up in this mess and going and suing one another. I would say that probably makes for a little bit of an awkward Sunday school class or Bible study. Uh, Can you pray for my court case? Uh, yeah, mine too. <laughs> I can't imagine how awkward it would be, these people within the church going back and forth against each other in this, uh, this deadlock of a lawsuit. And really what it came down to is, they weren't just trying to receive reconciliation for the situation, they were wronging and defrauding one another. So they were seeing the other person and saying, you have money, you screwed up, your job Was not good. I'm suing you, brother. I'm suing you. And so Paul heard that this was going on in the church. And these cases are being brought before the civil magistrate. And so he responds. In verse 1 he says, How dare you? And in verse 8, You even defraud your brother. Instead of selling possessions and belongings and giving away the proceeds as any has needs, instead, you sue each other in front of the civil pagan magistrate so that you can get more out of this deal. How dare you? It's important to realize what these, to understand what these cases were. In verse 2, he says that these are trivial cases. They're trivial matters. So what he's talking about here are are civil matters. And uh, most legal matters within uh, the church are civil matters. So when he says uh, trivial, he's talking about civil cases, not criminal things. And we'll come back to that. It's an important thing to understand, to have a right understanding of this passage. So he's hearing what's going on. They're taking these civil trivial matters before the magistrate and he says how dare you you're defrauding your brothers so how does he instruct the church to handle these matters in verse 1 positively he's saying do not go against the do not go to the pagan mag- magistrate go to the saints go to those within the body now when we say saints we're not talking about Uh, saints like the Roman Catholic Church understands them. It's not dead guys who the church decided were saints. Saints are believers, those who are true believers in Christ. And so what would happen, he's instructing then, is that uh, if there was a dispute that the two would get together and they would go to one to help sort it out. So they would go to uh, Scott, the patron saint of financial advisors. And so they go to him, and he doesn't have a law degree, and he doesn't need it. He loves the Lord. He's impartial to the situation. He lives a holy life filled with the Holy Spirit. He's wise in the Scriptures. He has a good understanding. And so we go to this brother, lay the case before him, and ask him to help us sort it out. That we trust His objective, impartial decision who is judging the situation based on the facts of the situation and the biblical truth and the principles that He knows to be right. And so He's saying two Christians should not be going to court against one another. There's a need for a third party maybe to be a mediator to help referee. Otherwise, what's going on? The church is taking... Dirty laundry that two believers who are supposed to live in love and peace and unity with one another, taking that dirty laundry and hanging it out for the world to see and publicizing imperfections and disputes for all the non-believers to look at and laugh. There goes those Christians again, always at each other, always fighting. And so Paul says, how dare you do this to one another? A little historical background here. We, we see in the Bible that even the first century Jews did not go to public court to take care of legal matters. Uh, essentially, what happened in a community, if there was 11 or more uh, Jewish people, then they had enough to establish a synagogue. And so when disputes arose, the synagogue became the court. And the legal process took place within the family of the Jews. They never took their problems into the pagan world. Why? Because they wanted to show that there was unity and love and peace amongst them. They considered taking a claim to a pagan court, blasphemy against God, because what it was saying essentially is God does not have the answer to this, so we need you who does not know God, who does not know the truth, which he has revealed to make a decision for us. And so the Jews believe that doing so was blasphemy against God. And even the Roman and the Greek uh, world honored the Jewish legal system. We see that in the gospel accounts with how uh, Jesus was dealt with. Uh, Short of execution, the Jews had the right to decide their own cases. And even with Jesus, Pontius Pilate asked, what do you want me to do with them? And they shouted, crucify Him! They made their decision. And so the Roman and Greek world honored the legal system that the Jews had established. And so this same right, these same rights were transferred over to the church because Rome considered uh, the Christian church to be a sect of Judaism. And so they were allowing Christians to decide their own cases. So there was no reason on top of the fact that they did not know what was right and true. There was no reason on top of that to go to the pagan court. And so if this was the case, why were they then ending up in the pagan courts? Primarily, I think it is proper to conclude that if these cases were handled in the Christian community, then they wouldn't get what they wanted out of the the dispute. They wanted to gouge each other. They wanted to get as much out of it as they possibly could. They wanted the just, just payment for the claim. You took my money. didn't finish the job. They wanted... Reconciliation for that, to receive money back for the claim that they had. And then they wanted an additional three and a half million dollars for emotional distress. They wanted to solve the claim and then get more out of it if possible. And they knew if they did that with a Christian court, with other believers hearing the case, that would never happen. They would simply be reconciled in the matter and it would be over. In addition to that, many in the Corinthian church were former pagans, not Jews. And so in Corinth and in Athens, a neighboring city, court cases were really a a way of entertainment for the people. There were always court cases going on in Corinth and in Athens. It was said that there could be at times between one and six thousand jurors to make a decision in a case. So in a city, they would take all of the, the men who were 30 years of age and older. If it got to the point of it being a public hearing, every man who was 30 years of age or older became a member of the jury. And everyone else was there to witness the case, and so it was the talk of the town. And this went on and on and on. it was always court cases going on. And so they could have up to six million jurors to make a decision. So in the end, really, everybody was a lawyer and a jury member and a judge. Everyone gave their opinion, and it was entertaining to the people. It was live court TV. We love to sit and watch people get prosecuted, right? How many? There's uh, Judge Wapner was first, I think. We saw uh, who's Judge Judy. Um, I don't know the rest. There's three or four more. Um, we, we love to turn that on and watch people's legal cases. We want to watch them put their dirty laundry out there. And watch someone else yell at them for a little bit so they can get it sorted out. Or watch long, drawn-out court cases that involve celebrities. We want to see every minute, every minute detail of it. Those things are juicy. And we love it. It's very much the same way the, the Corinthians uh, and, and the Athenians were doing in their community. It was a form of entertainment. And so the Corinthians were used to this. And when they became Christians, they carried this with them into the church. And Paul is responding to them, how dare you? They never made the break. And, and so Paul continues pressing this point here that we saw a couple weeks ago. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little bit of this practice from the world brought into the church corrupts the whole thing. If you keep dragging these pagan practices and entertainments into what we're doing as a body of Christ, you're going to corrupt the whole thing. How dare you? Look at verses 2 and 3. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now remember, before I go on with this, we need to strike a balance here because he's talking about trivial matters, civil matters. Uh, flip real quick to Romans 13. Let's back one book, chapter 13 of Romans. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read to 7. Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, so we have instruction here. St. Paul writing these instructions saying, Obey the state. Obey the laws. God has appointed magistrates over you, servants of His to carry out His wrath in issues of injustice. And so the magistrates are appointed by God, believers and non-believers alike, and he uses them as a means to handle uh, criminal matters. So here we're talking about things like uh, rape and murder and molestation and those issues that come up. So in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, take care of your own matters within the church. Take care of these civil disputes within the church. But we understand also that God has appointed magistrates to deal with issues that are criminal. So whenever possible, take care of the matter in the church. Because there are many sins that are not crimes in the world, right? There's many things that we sin in that the world would look at and not see as a crime. Are we going to get a lawyer because someone gossips about us? Are we going to call together a judge and jury when we know that someone has been locked into a life of lust and pornography? Are we going to get our lawyer on the phone when someone's impatient with us? Okay, these are issues of sin. He's calling us to handle within the church. These are not issues to bring to the magistrate. Civil matters in many ways are, are crimes uh, it's not a crime punishable by law, but it is a sin against God. But when it comes to crime, the church cannot cover up crime and call it an in, in, internal matter, right? We see this in the news um, a lot, that uh, things will happen and then the church, uh, whatever Whatever they go by, whether they're Christian or not, a lot of times we'll try to uh, cover it up, call it an internal matter, and that they're going to handle it. Uh, that is a crime in and of itself. <laughs> because justice is about protecting victims, not hiding and harboring criminals. Okay, there's a big difference. We handle civil matters where there's not victims who are wronged by a crime, but we handle matters of sin and things that can be worked out amicably if they're financial or have to do with property and business and things of this nature. But when there's issues of, of, of rape and murder and molestation and all these criminal acts, uh, we can't take those into the church and say, we'll, we'll handle this uh, by calling together um, those who will hear the case and we'll make a decision whether or not we're going to turn them over to the police. Uh, It's not an option. And that's what Paul is getting at and helping us to see in Romans uh, 13. So in these verses 2 and 3, Paul wants to show that there's injury that is done to the church when trivial claims about earthly matters are brought before unbelievers. Unbelievers as if no one in the church at all is qualified to make a judgment. In other words, the Corinthians were destroying the church's witness to the world and putting matters into the hands of unbelievers. And they're not honoring the believers who are with them and giving them the opportunity to help them through this matter. And he's saying, since God has deemed Christians worthy of judging the whole world. It is ridiculous that they should be kept from judging small matters as if they were unqualified to do so. And he's, he's talking here about an eschatological future reality, a reality that is to come When believers will be given the right to rule in the messianic kingdom on the throne with Jesus. We see this in Revelation chapter 3. It says we we will judge the world with Jesus. We will judge the angels. So he's speaking of a future reality. He's saying if this is what God has entrusted in you to come, He's preparing you for this. He's working this in you. He's sanctifying you, making you holy for this work. If that is what you're going to be called to, how then can you not turn to one another to deal with small, trivial, earthly matters that in the end will mean absolutely nothing? Look at verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? In other words, since these things are true, why are you not handling them yourselves? Now, verse four there kind of presents a bit of a translation problem for um, for Bible translators, the, the King James Version says, if then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. And, and many believe uh, that Paul there is using a bit of sarcasm. He's saying you're better off asking the weakest member of the church to settle this matter than to go to an unqualified, unsaved judge. And I think that is the, the best, uh, that is the best rendering of that. Other translations, the ESV implies uh, pagan judges. He's asking, why are you bringing this to pagan judges? He's already been asking that question. Um, here's what, here's what uh, John Calvin said about this verse. He said, even the lowest and meanest among you will discharge this office better than those unbelieving judges to whom you have recourse. So far are you from necessity in this way. So either way, whatever Paul is saying there, the result is the same. Do not take these matters of a trivial nature to the court. Deal with them within the church. And in verses five and six, he's saying it is shameful. It is absolutely disgraceful that you would not find anyone among you who is qualified to settle this matter to settle amicably amongst the brethren. This is an honor that you're now assigning to unbelievers. It's a disgrace. And then in verse 7, he moves from this being a disgrace that the gospel is being derided by unbelieving courts to the disgrace and the defeat That they couldn't handle this dispute amongst themselves in the first place. Let's look verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And so he's saying, you shouldn't have these disputes in the first place. And if you do, then handle them within the church. And you're going even beyond that and taking it to pagan magistrates to judge in this matter. And so he's saying you did not have it within your hearts to endure patiently with one another. This is the very thing we're called to, right, as believers. Matthew five forty four love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Not sue them for what you can get and add an extra three and a half million to the top. Romans twelve twenty one, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the defeat starts well before the fact that they're going to the civil magistrates. The defeat rests in their inability to endure with one another in patience. They sin in their impatience and their self-exalting attitude that expects that all matters are going to go their way. And when they don't, they're going to take it to the extreme that they can get it. So really, what Paul is addressing here is the heart issue. This is the most important element in this passage, is that Paul is addressing their hearts. And so we have, to, we have to ask a question here, because this is where all of this really applies to us Is is how is it that one is able to patiently endure with others with a heart that is willing, as Paul says, to be wronged and defrauded? That just grates us wrong, right? That's not natural. That is not our natural inclination is to say, uh, you have uh, wronged me and we're going to say that's okay. It's not something we instinctively decide to do. When something happens and we've been wronged, everything within us screams, no, this is wrong. There's injustice here. I need to be repaid. I need you to fix this problem. It's wrong. Nothing inside of us is saying it's wrong. I love you. I will pray for you. I will plead with you and ask you to come and work this out with me that we might be reconciled. But in the end, if you refuse... I would rather be wronged and defrauded than to bring shame to the gospel by bringing this to the civil magistrates. So what is it? What gives us that heart? What gives us that desire and that longing to walk in that way? It's our Sunday school answer. It's it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. We are able to patiently endure evil and injustice And suffering in our lives being wronged and defrauded instead of staining the witness of the church and ourselves. When and only when we have been transformed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other way because everything inside of us screams injustice. That's why we exist as a church. That's part of our mission. Ephesus Church exists to see transformed lives. So this is what happened. God initiates and comes to us and He gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. He regenerates our hearts, gives us new hearts and calls us to repentance, to repent of our sins and to believe in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a command to all men everywhere to repent and believe. And when we do that, when He does that work in our lives, we are justified. We are made right before God. We are reconciled to God. And then we begin to walk in our sanctification. We begin to walk in becoming more and more like Jesus, to be made more and more holy. And because we're justified, we are now set free to love others and embrace being wronged and defrauded to show that Jesus is far greater to me than any recompense this world has to offer. I think a lot A lot of times we get this wrong. Because we want to flip those things around and say, I need to be good and I need to do good. And as a result of that, Jesus will love me and save me. Jesus accepts me because I do good and am good. That's, that's, the main problem with that is the Bible. That's not Christianity. That's religion. Religion says, do all of these things so that God will be happy with you. Biblical Christianity says, God transforms you from the inside and works on your heart and gives you a new heart and gives you new affections and new desires, so that as a result of that, you walk in the holiness that God calls us to. Huge difference. Huge difference. And so when we take Christianity, when we take Christian faith, and boil it all down to, to moralism, to say it's about being good and doing good, and, and I'm, I'm going to do right. Well, that, that's, that's not the gospel. The Gospel is God transforms you so that you will live out the Gospel in these ways because you desire that, you long for that. We must make that distinction. That's the only way we get to a place where we are able to look at a situation and be wronged and defrauded and to swallow it and to move on. Because when we're transformed, our greatest desire in this life is is to make much of Jesus and be willing to lay down our very lives in an instant if that's what will bring Him the greatest honor and glory. And so if I'm offered to give my very life for the sake of Christ, I ought to be able to give a few thousand dollars that I feel I've been wronged in, or a job that didn't go so well, or a business transaction that went defunct, When I'm transformed, my greatest desire is to make much of Jesus. It is far greater for Jesus' sake to say, you owe me $10,000, but I'm not going to sue you. I'm going to try and work this out. I'm going to try and work this situation out so that we can be reconciled to one another, uh, but I'm not going to sue you. Instead of saying, you owe me, and I'll get it from you no matter what it takes, because it's mine. That's the world's attitude. I will do what it takes and more. But Jesus himself said, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Okay, we we have to be careful with this passage though. We have to consider also what Paul is not saying. That's very important to this. Two things. one, Paul is not preventing Christians from being in a lawsuit with a non-Christian. And two, this does not prevent Christians from defending themselves when being sued. In fact, you better. (laughs) So in light of all that we've considered, if one of these two situations arises, we must consider the most important question to add on to that. What is best for the gospel? What is best for the reputation of the church? Uh, Four considerations and we'll be done. First, when a matter arises, we need to distinguish between going to the court before pagans or before Christians. If I have a dispute with another believer and we cannot work that out, we need to go to two or three others and seek their counsel to help us work that situation out. If it is that there are two Christians, our heart should be that we would rather suffer wrong than to take our case before pagans. Because that will only do a work to harden them and bring contempt to the Gospel. Give them a greater distaste for the church. Secondly, we need to ask, am I going into this situation with malice and revenge for my own good? Or am I seeking to suppress and reform sin that's going on? You see, legal recourse is not a means to fulfill revenge or to better oneself or to vent malice. If we're walking into these things, our desire should be reconciliation and repentance and the removal of sin. There's a huge difference. We must ask, what is my heart here? This is very difficult. To be wronged and defrauded and have no malice, no desire for revenge? Almost always, if we are honest with ourselves and asking that question, that will end the case right there. We should desire reconciliation, repentance and removal of sin. Again, how? The gospel, the work of Jesus in our lives. Third, we have to ask, am I going into this in haste or is this the very last remedy because everything else has failed? Have I rebuked someone in sin and privately sought to be reconciled to them? Have I sought the help of others in this situation that could um, that could help us sort this out? Have I sought arbitration? Have I gone to those who will help us work through these matters? To jump directly to judgment, to, to find the judgment of the court without going through these other things is sin. We're going in haste because of our heart of malice, our desire to be uh, to be um, paid back for what was done wrong to us. And So we must consider why. How are we going in haste or is this the last effort? And lastly, we must ask, is the hurt caused greater than the benefit gained? Is following this course, in other words, is this likely to do good? Let me give you an example. Many of you know of uh, the European politician, a very faithful Christian abolitionist named William Wilberforce. And in the late 1700s, 1800s, he fought to end slavery in Europe, the slave trade. And he fought one item in the House of Commons for 26 years. Kept bringing the legislation back up every single year. Kept getting smacked down. Why? Why? Why was he pursuing, as a Christian, why was he pursuing legal means to bring about what he saw in the Scriptures to be an injustice? Well, it was simple, he, he, he saw and believed that black people were also made in the image of God. And they also deserved the same rights and freedoms of all other men around them. And he saw this and he said this is worth pursuing because the result is a greater good. And so we must always ask, is the hurt caused by this greater than the benefit gained? I think Christians would do very well to ask that question when we get involved in political issues. Because a lot of times we stick our heads out there And uh, we expect things of pagan people that pagan people cannot and will not do. And when doing that, we often present ourselves looking like fools because we've never asked, is following this path going to bring about a greater good? Am I fighting for an issue that is going to end? If it ends favorably, it's going to do greater good. So that's asking what's best for the gospel. Christians maligning one another in front of unbelievers is a bad witness, plain and simple. And so we have to ask if a wrong has already been done, why not just receive it instead of turning and wronging them back? What's in our hearts? At what cost is this worth pursuing? Not just money. Unity with a brother? The witness of the Gospel? The witness of the church? The witness of Jesus? Is all of this worth putting on the table so that we can right what we see to be a wrong? You have to ask, how does this appear to unbelievers? I think most of the time, Most of the time, we can look at situations we get involved in and say, loss is better. Loss is better. Because grace says, I care more about Jesus and his witness and the witness of the church and the truth of the gospel. I care more about these things than I care about receiving what I feel I've been wronged about. So this is Paul's word to us in the Scriptures. This is God's word to us. It's a difficult thing, a very practical matter that many of us uh, in this life will most likely at some point be faced with. And so we must be wise and discerning in these situations, but overall, ultimately, must ask, what is the greatest gospel good? We must have hearts that are willing to be wronged and defrauded, for the church, for the gospel, for the sake of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for your instruction. Thank you that you have given us uh, your word and in your word have given us very practical instruction as to how to pursue things in this life that will arise. Lord, let us not be wise in our own eyes. Let us not seek to fulfill things in our own understanding, but let us seek to know all things according to the Word of God. I pray, God, that You would help us to have hearts, transformed lives, that desire to see Jesus exalted, that by Your grace long to see Christ made much of, That we would be reconciled to those who wrong us. That we would be forgiving. That we would seek to point out sin, but that we would not bring our dirty laundry into the world. That the church would be mocked. Help us, Father, to see that all that You offer in Christ Jesus, all that You sustain us with and give to us, and provide for us in Christ Jesus is far greater than any recompense this world has to offer. You're great and glorious and faithful and kind, Lord. We pray that you help us to walk according to your commands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.